Special episode of World One One Podcast. Uh, here with me, as per usual, is uh, the Nestle Wonderball Magic Head Chocolate Thunder Wonder from Down Under, Eddie V. I want some twisters and fruit roll-ups. Hey, everybody! And joining us again, uh, back from his uh, being detained at the border, uh, our resident snow Mexican, Adrian Nieto. I'm not dead. Oh, your beard! <laughs> you grew your beard out, Adrian. It's more yep. thick. You're looking right there. And joining us from uh, Legendary Studios, Presto Studios, uh, we have Tommy Yoon. Yeah. Hello. And Keith Kaisershot. Hello. Nice to and be here. Matthew Hoops. Hello. Oh, I have been looking forward to this since Christmas. So, um, the the fine folks from Presto Studios joining us this evening um, as their uh, game, uh, Journeyman Project Pegasus Prime, uh, hits Steam finally uh, today. Um, we're recording Sunday. It goes live tomorrow. So, yes, when you hear this, it'll be up. You can go buy it, and you should. Uh, that being said, guys... Uh, Tell us a little bit about your history uh, with Presto, with the industry. Uh, Tommy, Keith, Matthew, whoever wants to jump in first. Tommy's been there the longest. He should start. <laughs> okay. Um, I met the guys from Presto back in either late 1990 or mid-1991, and uh, they didn't know what this project was going to be called. I just remember that Spaceship Warlock had just come out and everyone was uh, playing it because it was the first game of its kind to come out and everyone was impressed that it came out first. However, everyone had different skill sets saying that after they looked at it, oh, I could do this part of the game better. I could do that better. I could do that better. And it was about half a dozen guys who were attending school in UC San Diego and they decided to band together in a suburb in San Diego and just start working on something. And they didn't know what it was. And everybody was just throwing stuff against the wall just to see what stuck. And about eight different environments got trimmed down to about three. And within about a year, everything started falling together. And a presentation was made at Macworld. This was... I believe 1992, Macworld 1992 in January. 
And it got such a crazy response that, uh, and this was at Club Mac, if you remember the store back in the 1990s, this was before the advent of internet commerce, there was a Club Mac store for getting early Apple products, and they gave Apple some space because the head of Club Mac, Mike McNeil, knew Michelle Cripolani, the president of Presto, and lo and behold, within one year, Presto was on the hook to deliver something, and the guys just hunkered down and delivered a working game, and that launched a company. Right on. Now, can I ask a question, Tommy? Um, was FMV in? Um, was that becoming like in style during that time, during the uh, early nineties? I'm sorry. Can you repeat the question oh, again? Um, if FM, FMV full motion video, uh, was that coming? Um, um, you know, because it looks like in, in the PC area, full motion video was around. Did that just start around that time that you guys started developing games? Yes, it was just starting. In fact, um, when I was working at a telecom company, I was working at a company uh, called GTE, which is a predecessor company to Verizon. And at that time, Apple had a top secret technology called, uh, I think it was called, uh, War. they had a couple of code names. They had Warhol and Road Pizza. And <laughs> what? When, yes, it was. And when they were doing a technology demo, uh, the fastest computer that they had at the time, a Macintosh 2, could deliver 120p video. That's 120 lines of video at 15 frames a second. And this was the best bandwidth they could get out of the best machine that they had, which cost almost 10 grand. And when people saw it in a tiny little window, everybody was blown away. They were like, what the hell? A uh, we don't have to broadcast this analog using the old NTSC broadcast technique. This could be delivered digitally. This is going to change the world. Everybody was just blown out of their chairs when they saw this. And um, there was also another company called Paco, which was developing uh, – no, no, COSA. They were developing a technology called Paco. And that is, eventually became um, – they got folded into Adobe. Their technology became Adobe After Effects. But the basis of that technology is now seen in what you see uh, animated GIFs all the time. And so we were just seeing all this technology before the Internet existed. Or the Internet existed as – but very few people used it. But this was before World Wide Web. And um, – I think just by happenstance, everybody knew about these technologies and so were figuring out how can we throw this into the first journeyman project and make some kind of an interesting experience. And when the game came out in 1993, the problem was that it was really cool as a technology demo, but only the top 10% of the user base could even run this game at all. It was just the most decked out Macintosh 2s which were really expensive computers at the time, could even run this game at all. And then when it finally came out for Windows, 386s would choke on this. Really, you needed a 486 to run it properly. And at that time, those were really expensive PCs. But um, I guess you could say that Presto was ahead of its time in terms of adopting the technologies because they would just go, oh, wow, that's cool. Let's throw that in. Oh, that's cool. Let's throw that in. 
And um, I guess in a way you could say the rest is history. Oh, actually, coming back to what you brought up, FMV. One of the first games to use FMV was a really obscure game called Iron Helix. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. And this came out either right after or about the same time that Journeyman Project came out. And the issue that Iron Helix had was it was really cool the way they were using it. It was really awesome. And there was be another game that would come out around that time also that was that was able to use FMVs to connect navigation together, and that was uh, Seventh Guest. But the problem was that computers had such limited um, bandwidth at the time. I remember the programmer from Seventh Guest, who was an absolute genius by the name of Graham Devine. Uh, is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> he had code a custom playback system just to get video at a playable rate on computers that were available at that time. And finally, the technology in QuickTime and Windows Media were able to catch up to the point around 1995 where a general desktop system could play it without special features. And that's where Buried in Time finally came out, where we had animation connecting navigation together that's when we had um i guess you would say one of the first full motion video navigation games where the video looked presentable and this was in uh 1995 and then pegasus prime came after that and you'll notice that the playback window was gradually getting slightly slightly bigger each time because the computers were getting better and could keep up and finally with um, the Journeyman Project 3, you had a full-width window. You, um, It was a full 640 wide, which we laugh at now because that's like the default YouTube playback size on a phone. But <laughs> back then, for a computer to play back, that back was, you know, mind-blowing. And uh, was that also the time where the Sega CD was out? Because I know 3Duo was out, like, I think two years later. And Atari yeah, Jaguar... The Sega CD was coming. We were trying to get Sega CD to play back uh, the console port of Journeyman Project Pegasus Prime. And really, Sega CD just couldn't hack it because it was a 32-bit system that was piggybacked on top of a 16-bit system, uh, the uh, Genesis. And really, uh, the only system that could handle FMV reasonably well was the PlayStation because it was designed from the ground up. Uh, to handle optical media. And um, that pretty much uh, became a game changer. Y you noticed how because the PlayStation could do pretty good FMV at like a, I don't know if you remember video CD before DVD existed, you could play it yeah. back at that resolution. And even then, that blew people away. And so all the PlayStation games that came out for the first PS1, they just had all these elaborate, FMVs to start their games because they wanted to show how they were better than everybody else. Uh, that was something they had a leg up on. But then when the uh, Saturn started coming out, uh, I remember Bernie Stolar. He was the head of Sony, I think in the US. Uh, he wanted to make sure that FMVs did not become a crutch for the PlayStation because so many bad FMVs started games started coming out in the mid-90s. I mean, you've heard of Night Trap and games like that. Yes. And so then, all of a sudden, there was like this abrupt 
uh, Hail Mary turn in the PlayStation 1's um, strategy, the early games that came out were very heavy with FMV. Then suddenly they wanted to play up the uh, real-time aspects of the PlayStation. And that's when uh, you had uh, Tekken 2 and Crash Bandicoot come out uh, to show off how good the... the uh, you know, real-time polygon rendering was on the PS1. And I think Pegasus Prime was just caught in the middle of that where uh, it had one of the earliest um, skew numbers for a PlayStation game. It was like uh, 0026, which was like a really, really early skew number. They wanted this to come out because it was an FMV game. But then finally, when the game was delivered, all of a sudden the strategy for the PlayStation had changed, and uh, the game just never ended up getting released, even though it was coming out from a... Oh, yeah, and at that time, there was also this problem where Acclaim, which was the publisher for the PlayStation version, ran into financial trouble, and um, we're really not sure what became of uh, that Gold Master. Game was delivered, oh, yeah. it was ready to go, it just never hit the market. Um, well, can we yeah, play- Acclaim... The claim imploded around 1997. It was really messy. So, who knows? Um, I remember, uh, they were so desperate to have a hit. Um, they were releasing BMX XXX uh, just to get uh, you know market interest, but uh, that kind of blew up in their face, and uh, that was the end of the company, I guess. Can we blame Street Fighter the movie The Game for that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we blame Street Fighter the movie The Game for that? Oh, 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 yeah. Yes. There's plenty of blame to throw around for the demise of a claim. Trust me. <laughs> um, if if oh, I yeah. can ask, go, go ahead. If I'm not mistaken, didn't Pegasus Prime on the PlayStation eventually hit in Japan? No, that was also delivered uh, to Bandai in Japan. Um, Bandai was simultaneously trying to launch its own platform at the same time, the Pippin, with Apple. And unfortunately, that was something that didn't work out well for Apple at the time. This was pre-Steve Jobs when Apple was in, um, I I guess you could say it was a hot mess within the industry at the time. And so um, there were cool ideas with the Pippin, but um, it just wasn't a good launch. It was... It was almost like Apple was trying to launch their version of an Xbox with their technology before their technology was ready. Um, You could say that Microsoft had their killer app. Their killer app was they snatched Halo right from uh, under uh, Apple's nose, you could say, because Halo was originally previewed on PowerMax by Steve Jobs, and then uh, Microsoft realized how valuable Halo was, and they just bought out the company and canceled, uh, or at least delayed the Mac development. Um, and then made that the centerpiece of the Xbox launch. Um, unfortunately, Apple didn't have a killer app like that for the Pippin launch. And uh, the Pippin, unfortunately, um, yeah, didn't survive in the marketplace. And Pegasus Prime, yeah, just, I don't think it ever came out for either the Pippin or the PlayStation widely. It's possible that the company might have generated a few units just to satisfy contractual obligations, but we've never seen it in store shelves. I've never seen a copy of it myself. Yeah. No. (laughs) 
So the short answer is, did it come out for PlayStation? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. <We're> not, <laughs> if you yeah. find one, please let me know. I would like to buy it from you. <laughs> Presto would like Keith to buy it from sell you. a kitty for that, by the way. <laughs> I've hunted for that myself to no avail. I actually had a friend overseas, and I asked her kindly to do some looking, and she came up with not a buckus, too. So, hmm. so uh, Keith, a little about you. Oh, boy, where do I start on this? Um, let's see. Well, Tommy kind of gave uh, the, short of, the short recap of his involvement with Presto, so let me, let me start back at where I got my start. Um, I've... I've I've been a I've been a game programmer for a while. I mean, I I said before the the podcast started. I mean, Journeyman Project was the game that got me into game development. It's the one that convinced me I should be a game programmer because this was back in like 1994, 1995, and um, the the Performa that my grandma had came with this like uh, sampler CD with a bunch of demos from Inside Mac Games on it, and the Journeyman Project was the last one I fired up because. In the in the short in the the small icon view of the folder with all the demos in it, every other one had a really cool looking icon, and so I I didn't look at Journeyman Project because I didn't know what it was going to be about. It didn't have a cool name like some of the other ones like Pax Imperia or Vet or SimCity 2000. It's like Journeyman Project. What that's what's that game about? I don't know. So I saved that for the end. But when I fired it up, I mean at the time 1994 or so, I was really big into Wolfenstein 3D. And that game, I'm sure you folks have played it before, but you run around in this real-time 15 to 20 FPS world, gunning down enemies that look like they came out of a Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, let's be real. They didn't look very realistic, but it was a lot of fun running around through this virtual world because it felt more like you were really there versus a slideshow-style thing like Myst. But I fired up Journeyman Project, and here's this animation going on that is – just as smooth as Wolfenstein was, albeit I couldn't move around in real time, but the graphics just blew me away. And I sat there watching this trailer for Journeyman Project 1 and thought to myself, wait a minute, Wolfenstein 3D has got this really cartoony graphics, and Journeyman Project over here has got this really nice graphics, but really kind of slow movement. At some point in the future, these two things are going to converge, and I want to be there. I want to be part of this. I want to you know, be part of making this happen. So that's when I decided I wanted to get into game development. Um, fast forward a few years, I first met Tommy through his Journeyman Project forums that he had on his personal website for a while. And as early as February 2005, I started chatting with, you know, a couple dozen other Journeyman Project fans. There weren't too many of us. Including but, myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think, you know, the... 2005 was also about the time when Facebook was really coming into being, and uh, I got to give a shout out to uh, my one of my best friends, Josh Haran, out there for setting up what is probably the world's first social media page for the Journeyman Project. He started the Temporal Security Agency Group on Facebook, which originally was just for the University of Illinois. This is back when Facebook was only for colleges. Kids, ask your parents; they'll know. But eventually, he uh, he turned it global and so anybody could join and so from there it started picking up steam and you know uh no pun intended but uh from there i mean today we've got 460 members and it's still going strong i mean we've we've also got the the journeyman project page on facebook which tommy got, got that set up as soon as facebook made that possible and uh the the group that josh and i started is still still going and still active and i think 
that that group is more kind of a place for fans to hang out and talk about you know their fan projects or whatever they're working on a little bit of a little bit of a quote unquote off topic area for journeyman project discussion so um kind of got that started kind of built up a little community a little bit um but also around that time 2005 you know Pegasus Prime I had a Mac that could run Pegasus Prime I had played Pegasus Prime but curiously it was the only game out of the series that had not been ported to PC I mean, you got Turbo on PC, Buried in Time on PC, Legacy of Time on PC. Where's the love for Pegasus Prime? Uh, who knows? Uh, so I picked a co- picked up a copy off eBay for pretty cheap and played through it and figured, well, I'm a programmer. Why don't I just try my hand at porting it myself? So I, you know, off and on over the course of a few months, put together a really basic engine uh, that was that played the intro, got to the main menu, and then that's about as far as I got, uh, just b- through me trying to reverse engineer the format of the the resource files that came with the game and things like that. I, I thought naively that, oh, everything is kept in resources. This will be fine. I just need to write an interpreter. This will be great. <laughs> uh, nice and super easy. I'll be done with this in a few months. <laughs> no. Uh, so, But I, I kept some notes and things like that and posted this to my personal website. And um, eventually... Matt came across my notes, Matt, Matt Hoops here, and I think this would be a good segue into Matt <laughs> talking about how he got involved with Journeyman Project. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I set that up for you. There you go. You Take did. That was pretty good. That was, that was pretty good. Right. That's my segue king there. So I'll step back to 95, I guess, when I first started playing the games. My dad had bought a two-pack of the original Journeyman Project Turbo, buried in time at, I think it was CompUSA, and... I was only four years old at the time, and I loved the hell out of it. As we, we played lots of adventure games at the time, obviously the LucasArts ones, and but uh, we really liked the time travel stuff, especially Buried in Time. That was definitely one of my favorites for many years, even though we were terrible at it, but, you know. Uh, then uh, Legacy of Time, I got that, like, day one, had to get that. That's 98, and then I heard about this other, this uh, director's cut, of Journeyman Project, and then it later became known as Pegasus Prime, and I'm like, oh, I want to play this one, too. This one looks cool. And in about 2002, I got a copy off of eBay with the help from my grandmother, and also an old iMac, and this is really, this is my first Mac. I basically got the Mac just to play Pegasus Prime. And then I loved it. And a few years later, I was on the forum, you know, I, I remember talking with Keith, and Tommy about I don't remember what stuff, but I remember them being there. And then I was doing some early Scum VM development in 2006. Not that my C++ was very strong at that point. I was just starting out. But may I mention uh, that I can't believe you said Scum. Like that's kind of I think the oldest thing of PC. <laughs> <laughs> it's old. Uh, and then. Yeah, Keith had the website there, but I definitely wasn't strong enough to do too much with it, and uh, my reverse engineering skills were pretty bad. They're still not the greatest, but uh, then fast forward to 2009 is when the Legacy of Time 10th anniversary came out, even though it was a little late for the 10th anniversary, but it was the 10th anniversary for all intents and purposes. And I remember Tommy posted on the blog about an Easter egg that was re-added for the anniversary edition and me being me instead of trying to figure out what the easter egg was from the game i tried to look at it from the data file point of view <laughs> and i was looking at timestamps on videos and i tried to oh, i posted a comment you know 
is this it? And Tommy came back and said, no, it's not it. But I tried it. But uh, leaving the comment there also led a link back to my blog, which I had posted stuff about. I was probably doing Riven at the time. And then I got a mail. I guess it was late September 2009, maybe early October 2009, saying, hey, maybe we could do something with uh, Pegasus Prime stuff. And I was in college at the time. And over the course of a weekend, I threw something together in ScumVM to basically play the intro, do the menu, basically what Keith had just in, in ScumVM. And uh, things didn't happen at that time. Uh, and then in 2011, we did get the source, and then I started porting it into ScumVM late 2009. Probably, I think most of my work was between September and December. And I had the game finished uh, not finished, finished, but completable by early December 2011, I think. That feels like a long time ago now. And then uh, I showed it off to Tommy and Keith probably early 2012. And, yeah, that's about <laughs> Not sure how much else I can add to yeah, that. Well, uh, uh, well mid-2012, mid I can say that's that's about the time that I convinced Tommy, hey, well, as long as we're working on Pegasus Prime... Why don't we add some stuff to it? I mean, it's it's been you know almost ten years since the game came out, and we can. I mean, Tommy's obviously got the source code. What else do you have there, Tommy? I mean, is there stuff that was cut from the game, things like that? You know, there's a few bug fixes we need to make and things like that. But let's talk about maybe turning this into a like an anniversary release. And so Tommy got me a copy of the source code, and at first it was just, oh, I just want to keep the Mac version in sync because I'm, I'm a big fan of the Mac, and I had an old iBook, <laughs> and I just wanted to do it for the fun of it, just for the lulls, you know, but, uh, and I did that too, but at the same time, it's like, well, I'm in here, let's add a few features, like the ability to turn off the AI, or, you know, the, the ability to actually control the submarine and the subchase, and a few things that were just cut or just kind of left on the cutting room floor, and so I got the source code in 2012, and at that point, we were I, I was working with Matt on this with the Scum VM stuff, and we were really starting to turn this into an actual, honest to goodness, special edition of the game. Not just the CD version that that Matt had ported, but you know something that we could do for an eventual DVD release of the game that just never came out in the '90s. Yeah, because it you know, looks like it's a, it, it looks and feels like a remaster of like the whole game, with you know with some added stuff to it. I want to give you. Um a little interesting bit of context, that opening title sequence for Pegasus Prime, when we had queued up the project to output, um, the first time I had set it up and had it output, it, depending on which computer it was on, it would take between 6 to 11 hours to render. And then uh, many, many years later, I opened up uh, the project again, and I remembered how daunting it was to output, and I was a little bit concerned, and I thought, huh, this might be too big for the computer to render, but I've got a better computer now. You know, well, much better computer. It was about 10 years later. And I set some checkboxes and moved things around so it rendered at, tw- you know, four times the resolution as before. And then it was done in about six minutes. And then now... <laughs> And then now, uh, you know, uh, the computer I have right now, I don't think I've gone back to the file recently, but I'm, I'm sure it could do it in less than a minute. So it's just it, it just shows how uh, the technology has pretty much caught up. Uh, and it's allowed a lot of things to happen. Like there were 
there was a branching game with the submarine where all these branches were created. And you can even see them in the original release of Pegasus Prime. All the parts were in there in the game if you dive into the data files. And that's how I was reminded of this. Uh, I mean, I have to give Keith and Matt huge amounts of credit because there were so many things that I just completely forgot about. It was it's just like the way development is on many games. You know, uh, it can often be messy and you have to make tough decisions to meet your delivery date, what stays, what goes. And in this game, um, you don't have time to call everything to make everything nice and neat. You just want to make sure the game runs and then you just get it out the door. And there were just tons of assets in there that were just forgotten. And these guys would just go, hey, what's this for? What's this little sequence for? What's that for? And a lot of these ended up becoming the Easter eggs that were not in the original release that they've added code for to add back, uh, such as the sub, such as even the <clears throat> uh, – there were parts in Mars where you take a little uh, tunnel pod, and this was cut from the Mac release, mm -hmm. but it had uh, – the assets were actually in the PlayStation release. And so some of these assets were uh, brought over from the PlayStation version when we found those Golden Master discs into the Mac version. And then eventually with the Scumvium port that Matt did, it worked its way into uh, the Windows, all, basically all the versions that are available now. Very cool. I got, a, I got a fun, amusing anecdote related to finding stuff that we had previously forgotten about. Matt deserves 100% credit on this. Finding... The end credit song on a oh, yeah. CD on the CD ROM that was totally unrelated to Journeyman Project. Oh, uh, was, I'll tell the story. A, wait, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, go ahead, Matt. Um, me being a bit of a Presto fan, I was very curious about this other release that was put out in Japan, the um, Gundam the Double O Seven Nine, the War for Earth Japanese PlayStation release, mm -hmm. and I said. I saw this on eBay for like 15 bucks and probably uh, I must have been early 2012. And I'm like, this looks interesting. And I bought the disc or the, this is actually a two disc game, but I bought the game. I was taking a look at the disc and I noticed there was a file on there that said peg prime dot XA. I'm like, huh, this is interesting. What is this file? And I tried opening it and it didn't work because it was a, um, it's an XA CD. And this was actually an audio track on there that just happened to, but the, the OS didn't know how to handle it, so I actually played just the audio track on there, and there was this song on there that I'm like, whoa, what is this? And I kind of dismissed it. I'm like, the, the name must just be the same. It must just have been left over from the PlayStation Pegasus Prime release, I, and they just replaced the song with something for Gundam, because I had never heard this before. And then we were talking probably mid-2012, and I asked Tommy, what happened to that uh, PlayStation release with the uh, extra song in there? And Tommy was like, oh... Yeah, that never got into the final game. <laughs> so there it was. Because uh, on PlayStation, you would actually be able to, uh, if you kept the top open, you were able to put the game on. Uh, it would kind of load, but if you close it, it would go like to the, uh, if you're still in the music menu, it would pop up with the game's audio soundtrack to hear music. So that depended on the game and how it was coded, too. That Yeah, that's yeah, right. Also, Some games used audio from the CD. And it also the, the CD audio quality was much better than what the uh, built-in XA80 PCM could output. Definitely. Um, just just on a small throwback here, Keith mentioned uh, 
you know, talked a little bit about uh, some of the social media stuff for Journeyman Project and Presto Studios. I just want to let you guys know, you guys totally set the bar here. Um, the 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 notice you know that you guys were going to be on uh, that went up yesterday is the most traffic and traction that we have ever gotten on this show on anything. Like I was up all night watching and going, holy shit. So y'all set the bar. Well, well I would tune you. in if it were just me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, being a huge fan and all. <laughs> I, I, I think this was a time, uh, an adventure games, like that was, uh, adventure games. And I, think fps's like uh like you said wolfenstein i think they were still big on pc um because that when it comes to pc games or even mech games adventure games was like the only one that i heard that people were playing um and i'm a person who does a lot of console gaming so during that time i was doing like super nintendo and sega genesis and stuff so i didn't really have uh familiarity with uh pc but I know when people were talking about it, like like uh, Seven Quest and Mist and stuff like that, those kind of point and click adventure games were like the big thing on PC. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, I, oh go there's ahead. There's definitely a resurgence. <clears throat> well, well, yeah. Um, I think uh for it, uh, I know for me, I can actually tell you my first point and click game. It's definitely Hotel Dust on the on the DS. Hotel Hotel Dust two one three. Um, that, that was so my late actual shouldn't count. Well, I mean, as a adventure <laughs> as a adventure game, that was my first one. Uh, I don't even know what that one is. Yeah, really? I've never heard of that. That's pretty late. <laughs> yeah, my first my first adventure game, if you could even count this, would probably be Enchanted Scepters on the Mac from nineteen eighty four. Ooh, oh, goodness. Wow. Yeah. The very, the very, if depending on depending on where you read it and who 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 you hear, who you listen to, it's the first point and click adventure game with digitized sound. Jeez. Hmm. Mac in '84. My first adventure game was in 1979, and it was called Adventure for the Atari 2600. <laughs> I'm so done with oh, you. Another Tommy. one of my favorites. Oh, I played that a lot when I was not my first one, but I did play a lot of it. <laughs> I think my first was the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade graphic adventure. I think I ran that on our 91 PC. Oh, okay. What about you? I wonder if that was one of the... Yeah, a little later. Late 80s LucasArts, sounds like. Yeah, it's 89. I gotcha. Adrian, what's your first point of click or adventure game? Do you... I don't don't know. I don't know the name, but um, back in the day, my cousins, they were the ones that introduced me to gaming, and they, they were always upgrading their computers to the latest thing i actually remember when they finally swapped and got a uh cd-rom for their old i don't know windows 90 something computer uh that was like a big deal for them right um but uh they they were playing this like the pink panther game or something like that it was it was very weird i mean like as you can probably guess from the cartoon it's also very weird and and, uh, corny but um, yeah, that was that was the first game. I actually don't remember the name nor how it ends. It's just I just remember like interesting puzzles and very very awful Spanish voice acting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 
I would love to hear like NES overdub voice acting in Spanish. Like the oh, uh, they call it double dribble speak. How double <laughs> dribble was. Like I would love to hear that in Spanish. Uh, we'll make Adrian find you some of that at some point. Um, so I'll I'll totally own it. My first uh, point and click adventure game was actually the Journeyman Project Turbo. Um, it was good choice. Thank you. Early yeah. to mid nineties, <laughs> and it was by pure happenstance. Uh, my family had gotten its first computer, and it was a Hewlett Packard, and it came with you know a little pack of software suites and you know a couple odds and ends and uh in there was the journeyman project turbo and i grew up in a house i i have very much my father's taste i grew up in a science fiction household i love sci-fi everything and in particular even as a kid time travel always kind of caught my interest um so i i popped it in and started dinking around and oh dear god i got lost for for days just falling in love with this as a kid and uh you know it led me down the path to a few other personal favorites like the neverhood and um i I would even venture to say uh one of the best evolutions of the point click i will say was on the ds was um uh trace memory um yeah but in any case uh no that's that's where the love affair started for me and uh, it it never really went away. It just kind of got you know quiet as Presto, you know, stopped doing anything after three. Which um, brings me to one of the first questions I wanted to bring up. Um, as I recall, uh, a fourth installment was in the works or was being written at oh the boy, time here it that everything stopped. I'm just curious if that actually happened to have been the case and whatever became of that what whatever was done with it tommy this is all you <laughs> okay <clears throat> he's like not with a 10 foot pole nope i'm not going there <laughs> <laughs> so that yes there was indeed a journeyman project for uh game design that was put together and there was a producer assigned from broderbund and uh, everyone was really excited about it. Um, however, there was uh, some concern about the adventure game market at the time because real-time 3D games were exploding at that time. And Journeyman Project 3's way of reacting to that was we were one of the first games to use a 360-degree spherical um navigation system among pre-rendered games and um there's very few other games that came out like that at the time except for miss three which was also produced by presto studios and there was just a hard business decision made by broderbun which was um they had a monster hit in the adventure game space in the form of mist and ribbon uh, however, Riven took a long, long time to get um, to market. And I remember that uh, the folks over at Broderbund were really concerned because actually the release dates for the Miss series were actually affecting its stock price. And um, the that was the only adventure game that was a huge monster hit where um, it... Ha- um, 
where they could put it like a AAA title. Because even though Journeyman Project did well for itself, I would say because it's at that level where you could call it like a double A title. You know, it it's big, but it's really uh, the adventure game aficionados who really know about it. And so um, Journeyman Project 4 got shelved. And then uh, about a year later, Presto got selected to do Miss 3. And uh, uh, a lot a lot of the same team worked on. I was I wasn't on Mystery at that time. I was working on Speed Racer at Wildstorm, so I had moved on to uh, working on uh, comics. And eventually, I uh, ended up working, and I'm continuing to work on Robotech now. But uh, Journeyman Project Four was it was a good game design. We had really interesting stuff going on in it, and it actually added a layer to the universe. It made the universe a little bit bigger. But that uh, game design is under lock and key in the Presto Studios archives. And uh, there's lots of cool ideas in there uh, for other Journeyman Project branches. There were many different types of... There was like a Journeyman Project universe that was being developed at the time. Eric Dallaire, the writer who worked on Pegasus Prime and Journeyman Project 3, was working on a novel as well. Um, but then he also uh, ended up working on a different franchise at that time. He ended up working on the Star Trek games uh, for Activision. So there was, yeah, a lot of Journeyman Project work that ended up uh, uh, under lock and key, hidden away. But uh, um, there, I, I suppose there will be a right time for that to come back out again. Yeah, never say never. Well, yeah. do, you, do you think that... Um, if you look at how Telltale's doing the episodic games, do you think that part four would fit that kind of style? If you guys ever, a Presco ever decided to bring it out? Um, well, I, I can tell you, like, I can't speak to, to J4 or, you know, to Presco's future plans, but, um, Telltale's, uh, Back to the Future series of games, uh, I played that when that came out, oh, I think, when was that, 2012, 2010? 2010, wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> Jeez, I'm old. Um, so I played that, and I really liked how kind of the episodic format worked for that. I mean, it was it was mostly intended to tell a story. So if you're if you're doing a game where it's mostly story driven and you want to push the story forward through gameplay, and it's like it's not so much about the puzzles as it is about finding out what comes next, then episodic games I think feel a little more conducive to that sort of to that sort of thing. Um, uh, like. Uh, Jeez, I, where was my train of thought? I didn't even know where I was going with that. Um, but like for for the journey, for, not journey project for Back to the Future, they were basically expanding on the existing story, and so it was kind of like a TV series. It felt like playing. So you'd play this episode, and it would kind of wrap up at the end, leaving you wondering what was coming next, right? But in the case of like the Journeyman Project and a game where it's very non-linear and there's not really a progression from one episode to the next to the next. Like, for example, Pegasus Prime. You can complete the game in any number of ways by going to the different time zones in any different order that you want. I don't know if that style of game really fits an episodic format, but um, you know, it, it, it all really also depends on how the game is designed, how it's written. So if, if there were to be a future Journeyman Project game that was written with an episodic format in mind, mm -hmm. then it could work really well. Because yeah, because I think the way now people view uh, adventure games and even point and click is Telltale. 
uh, is that episodic because I think it allows developers to, you know, work on one part and then release it and be able to work on the next part. So people who are who want the game can at least wait. What I think it's every two months or something like that, or a few couple of weeks, and then they'll drop. It used it. to be every month, I think. Yeah, well, Telltale's really good about just turning those out. They've got they've got their own engine that just makes it really easy to get art through their pipeline and into a game and out on the out on the shelf. So uh, they've got a really nice kind of well oiled machine over the years to do those kind of games. Okay. Uh, I think the other problem with episodic though is that you know you play a little bit for a month and then you you get to the next month and you forgot what happened the previous month. That's a good that's, point too. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, it's I know, like, because I killed you a TV series where you, you know, you watch it, and then in November they take a break until like January, and then January comes and you forgot what happened months ago. Yeah. yeah. Well, in my case with Back to the Future, again with borrowing the TV TV series metaphor, I waited until they were all out, and then I just quote unquote binge played it. <laughs> so it's like I don't have that problem about remembering what goes from one to the next. It's like, oh, I'm just gonna power through the power through this in about six hours. Wasn't really episodic to you then. It was just That's one job. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, at the same point, if you play Journeyman Project One, Two, and Three back to back to back, first of all, it's going to take you a lot of time. So I hope you got a bathroom nearby. But second of all, it's going to feel the same way. Like it's one continuous game. So it kind of feels episodic in that way, in that it's split up between three games, but um, different different art styles and stuff between different interfaces, things like that. But it's very cohesive. It's one of the most impressive things I think I like about the Journeyman Project series. That, uh, that brings me to a question I wanted to raise here. Um, Journeyman Project 1 and 2, uh, story-wise, are, are very independent of each other, and 3 strung those two together so beautifully. I have to ask, was were these all laid out from the get-go, or was this something where they got to 3 and went, we have these two disparate stories, and somebody's like, I got an idea, we can put this together. Um, I don't know the details and I don't think Tommy's back yet, but I can, uh, no, I'm, I'm here. Oh, okay. So as, as I understand it, um, J one was just, just a bunch of, a bunch of folks just figuring it out as they go, uh, just figuring out what is this thing going to be, you know, trying to, trying to just get something out there because when they made J one, I don't think they had in their ideas. Oh yeah. We're going to do a sequel after this. You know, it's like, you don't know if it's going to be a success when you do the first one, you're just kind of throwing it out there and hope that somebody likes it enough to give you enough money and, you know, assets and whatever to do, to do a sequel. And, you know, when they did J2, oh, J2 did really, really well as well. Oh, this is, this is awesome. So now we can do a third one. I think it, it felt like, you know, Presto was doing it one after another, trying to, trying to, to figure out what they were doing as they were going along, but not painting themselves into a corner so that by J3, um, Tommy, did Eric did Eric write J three because he wrote J two and so Eric tying together oh, J one no, and J two. Uh, let me clarify that um, uh, J one was um, I guess I you would say wrangled together by uh, David Flanagan. Um, mm-hmm. That was because uh, the story was let's make it up as we go along, and so there was a lot of creative work going on. But it didn't quite fit together, and so uh, David Flanagan had basically uh, pulled something uh, uh, amazingly cohesive out of all that chaos uh, of all these creative guys just throwing everything against the wall. And then with the journeyman – and um, the interesting thing about Graham Jarvis as Elliot Sinclair, everything was 
you could almost say we were using Robert Rodriguez's school of low budget filmmaking before we knew these principles existed, which was just use whatever you have around you. If it's cool and throw it in to give your game more production value. And Gino Andrews happened to be next door neighbors to Graham Jarvis. And so, um, uh, you know, out, out by uh, the Pacific Palisade. So, um, you know, he just basically walked across his beautiful beachfront house to his neighbor, uh, Graham Jarvis, and said, hey, uh, you want to be in this video game uh, that my friends down in San Diego are working on? And Graham Jarvis graciously brought incredible gravitas as Dr. Elliot Sinclair to the first game. So that was just randomness that happened. With Journeyman Project 2, um, there was actually effort to bring in real Screen Actors Guild actors together and have a real story designed from the start. And so I would say that in terms of game design, Journeyman Project 2 probably hit the zenith. Um, it's I would say it is the best game out of the three. Um, I agree. And then with uh, Journeyman Project uh, 3, originally it was just going to pick up where Journeyman Project 2 left off, which was you had this... Um, unanswered question about what happened to Agent 3. And it was just going to pick up from there. Um, and uh, I had suggested the idea of, uh, why don't we just loop back and uh, figure out a way for Dr. Elliot Sinclair to have a role in this. And Eric Dallaire, who was working on Pegasus Prime, he was working on the rewrite of Pegasus Prime with that director's cut version of the original game, and he had also worked on Journeyman Project 2 in a supporting role. He was working on the writing of the historical documents, like uh, the stuff that you found in the castle and such. And he had gradually come on board the team. And uh, he had worked with David Flanagan in integrating the whole story together to kind of almost, um, I think this came up, which was Return of the Jedi, it, which was where by the time the third Star Wars came about, you notice how, hey, they're going all the way back to tattooing. So it's like bringing the beginning back into the end to make this whole thing have this veneer of we planned it from the start like this, um, even though we were making it up as we went along. And so it uh, unintentionally turned, uh, it rehabilitated Elliot Sinclair's character. By the end, you go, oh, my goodness, the crazy crackpot was actually right. Well, I would say when you get to the end of that, I you would not think that somebody was winging that as they went along. That was beautifully strung together. I got to give Eric credit for doing that. Eric's a really good writer. He's got a, he's actually got a book out now on Amazon. He wrote a, he wrote a novel, you know, post his journeyman project stuff, but reading it, it feel it's got a lot of the same humor hits a lot of the same beats as, you know, legacy of time. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to plug Eric's book. Cause Eric's a friend of mine shades, the Gehenna dilemma, pick it up on Amazon. Uh, but it, it feels like you're playing another journeyman project game when you're reading that. So it's really, really cool. What time so, can uh, Tommy, can I ask you a quick question while y'all was like putting everything together? Was there ever a time that, uh, that somebody would write something and you would be like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, it just seems so bonkers, so cuckoo bananas. Uh, every single day. 
<laughs> and uh, half, half of that came from Matt Weinhold, uh, the comedian who was the voice of Arthur. Oh, boy. Uh, he would... Uh, the the guy was a tornado in a bottle. Um, I could remember when he would come in for recording sessions, him and Eric Dallaire, who was writing a lot of the humor, and Jamie Scott would be in the room room together, the recording room, and it was supposed to be soundproof, and we could hear it throughout the entire building. They would just be busting up laughing nonstop every single day because... Um, half of the stuff that they would come up with was just even unusable. I mean, it would have, it would have been ESR. Half? Only half? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, nobody can buy this game because it's uh, unreleasable. So, I mean, we, we, there was a lot of editorial work done on Arthur to make him, uh, you know, uh, even remotely PG-13. <laughs> wow. Because it, it just feels oh. like there, there was some oh, moments... So Recordings are somewhere that I can hear. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I want some of the journeyman project outtakes. <laughs> there, there has to be like one moment you just, you probably walking by, you hear something, you just turn your head and be like, wait, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes we would, uh, have our eyes wide as eyeballs. We would go, oh, this is all so hilarious. Oh, wait, should we be really laughing at this? You know, but, uh, um, I mean, even even the stuff that's in the game is, just gives the Arthur's character, Matt, the, the character that Matt Weinhold created, has so much character that when Keith did the Easter egg coding to add Arthur as a replaceable AI in Pegasus Prime, it unintentionally cha- totally changed the tone of the game. When you play the... Um, default ai it's very rigid it's trying to almost babysit you through the game but then when you play it with arthur it almost feels like you're back you know in a comfortable pair of old shoes even though it's re-recordings of what you already heard in journeyman project two and three the game just feels like you know a nice old comfortable pair of shoes again you're like wow this universe feels familiar again while you're playing it I've got a fun story about that Arthur biochip that I love to tell. Uh, Arthur was not originally going to happen in Pegasus Prime. Uh, this was 2013, um, and 2013 was the 20th anniversary of the original Journeyman project. And so we wanted to get Pegasus Prime out into people's hands that year so that it would really be an anniversary release. And so this was around Thanksgiving or so, 2000, uh, 2013, and I was – back in Chicago visiting my folks for the Thanksgiving weekend. And I ping Tommy and I say, hey, Tommy, the game's done. We're ready to go. We got at least a month of lead time. We can, you know, get these discs pressed early and get these packaged up, and we'll have plenty of time to get these out. And Tommy's like, what about Arthur? I said, what about Arthur? He said, we need to put Arthur in the game. I said, Tommy, I just finished the game. I only have a month left. How am I going to do this? Do you know how many Arthur quotes there are? We need to place every single one of these. <laughs> so um, I uh, I bit my tongue, gritted my teeth, and I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. We do need to have Arthur in this game. So I, in a mad dash, you know, leading up to you know Christmas, the the Christmas holiday. I mean, Matt was Matt was there with me. We were you know up into up until like the very last. The very last day where we could no longer deliver the final discs to the 
to the duplication plant. Matt and I were working on bugs, you know, into the wee hours of the morning. I mean, Matt yeah, there were some bad bugs too. There were some. Oh yeah, oh, <laughs> there was wow. one that I there was remember there was one that I remember I found completely by accident that. Well, I didn't find it first. Matt had found it, but he had been complaining about it. And I said, well, I don't know how to trigger this. I can't figure it out until I was running the game in the debugger completely by accident one day, and it happened. The bug happened. What was, what was going on was if you played the, the canyon chase in, in Mars when you go through the Capretes Minor Canyon and then fly up into space and then you have to – capture the robot space the robot spaceship with the tractor beam after that's done it says okay destination safe for transport you click the button and it plays a little transport animation and then boom you're back in the ship and you can't do anything the game just soft locks like oh wow crap. Well, how how did this happen and there's nothing like i i kind of look through the code what is what is causing this i don't even know what in the world could be causing this sort of thing the cause of this bug goes all the way back to when you were still in the colony Basically, what was going on is Pegasus Prime has this feature called striding mode, which programmer Bob Bell invented as kind of a way of, oh, instead of, you know, walk forward, stop, walk forward, stop, walk forward, stop, he arranged the movies such that all the walk forwards were just one after the other. So if you hold down the forward key, then his code would detect and it's like, let's just keep playing the movie. You just keep walking forward, and that was called strider mode. It just smoothed things out. But that set a few, a few flags in the game, which basically told the game, okay, uh, we're still moving, we're still moving, we're still moving. Um, you know, move the player, keep moving the player forward in the map of the world. So the bug wound up being if you held down the forward key walking into the shuttle, it would put the game into strider mode and it would not take it out during the entire time you were flying the spaceship until the very end when you hit transport. And so it said, okay, let's keep moving forward. And moving forward from the game's perspective was still in the spaceship. And so you'd be stuck there. What? The uh, only way I found this was because of digging through the debugger. And I, I had this open for several hours and was going. Yeah, I think you were chatting with, with me at the time. Yeah, I was like, Matt, what do you think this is? What do you think it is? What do you think it is? Let's just look at everything. What looks wrong here? And we just went back and forth. And he's like, yeah, that, that does look a little suspect. Dig into this here. You know, this kind of looks like that could be something could throw throwing us on the scent there. So we did find it, but man, that's one of the worst bugs <laughs> that I uh, found. That one. I, I think the other worst one was, uh, when you would get into the Canyon chase and you would, you would, nothing would happen except you would walk, it would do like the bump of walking against the wall and then you couldn't do anything. Oh, I don't remember that one. Talk about that one, Matt. Oh, that was the one that was my fault where I was, Move something to a header, and uh, I don't want to get too into C++ stuff, but uh ended up being a bad cast. Instead of a static cast, it became a reinterpret cast, and it screwed up the V-table and ended oh, up calling the, uh, calling the wrong class to handle input. So it, it sent it to the actual environment at the time, Mars, as opposed to the Canyon Chase, which has a different input handler. So, yeah, you got stuck because it thought you were using the Mars as input handler, but playing the Canyon Chase, and it just wouldn't oh, continue. Yeah, yeah. That was brutal. Yeah. And it would only happen It would only happen with certain builds. Like, I would have a build, and it would be fine, but then Keith would build it with optimization on, and it would fail. And we're like, what the hell is going on here? Mm, that one took a long yeah. time to find. Yeah, you screwed up the v It doesn't even show up. Yeah, because you weren't having any bad memory access. It just happened to, you know... 
not destroy the program, but break it enough. So yeah, using something like Valgrind didn't even help. Yeah, you're lucky it didn't destroy the program. Speaking of which, <laughs> let's let's talk about some of the crash bugs we fixed. The original CD-ROM version of Pegasus Prime, I mean, I I give a lot of credit to the original programmer, Bob Bell. He, I mean, I, I imagine that, and Tommy could probably speak to this a little bit, what kind of time constraints was Presto under creating the first game? Because the original release for the Mac of Pegasus Prime, which we were lucky to even get from what I understand, but was so buggy. That I mean, there there was there was one crash that Matt found early on that when Tommy tried to reproduce it, completely hosed his power book, and he had to reinstall from scratch. Yeah, it's one of those one wow. of those crashes. Yeah, wow. it's and the bug was um, you kind of have to understand a little bit about how classic macOS worked on on modern operating systems. If you look at memory location zero. The OS will not let you do that. It just recognizes that as like, okay, they're doing something wrong. We need to let them know this is this is no bueno. We can't do this. And so it kind of throws an exception up there. But on the old Mac OS, no, we keep data down there. Memory, lo- memory location zero, we keep stuff there. In fact, you can read any memory location you want. We don't care. Protected memory, what's that? You know why you saw those bomb dialogues all the time on the Mac? Because programs could do whatever the heck they want with the hardware. The OS did not protect anything. It was, on one hand, amazing, and on the other hand, really scary. So one of the bugs that that Matt found right away was um, if you entered the canyon chase and you called up the pause menu, and I think if you tried to save a game, what the the game would do was – or load the game, yeah. What the game did is it sets a, a series of what in the code are called continue points, which are basically checkpoints in the game. As you reach a certain point, it's like, okay, make a continue point, make a continue point. And when you hit continue from a death screen, it will just kind of revert you back to that checkpoint where you can keep playing the game. Um, but in order to make a continue point, you need to have the interface up, the Telltale Journeyman Project biotech interface that contains everything, the little screen. But... During the canyon chase, that all goes away, and now you're in the space the spaceship. So if you try to save the game, it tries to create a continue point, but that interface isn't there. And so it's like, oh, okay, well, let's just create this continue point using the address that was there that now doesn't point to anything, and now you've got just garbage data. And on a modern computer, it's like, okay, crash back to Windows, and you're fine, but... On the Mac, it's, oh, we're going to read from this garbage location and write garbage to this garbage location. Kaboom. (laughs) So, Tommy dipped out for a minute here, and you're not off the hook. Um, My my inner child is going to kick me in the teeth if I don't ask this. Um, What, if anything, can you tell us about where the story was headed for J4 before it got locked up? Uh, I have been sworn to secrecy, and if I say anything about that, they're going to strand me in the past, so I'm sorry yeah, about too. that one. Sorry. Yeah, I can tell you that I've read it. Uh, the design doc does exist. It's pretty fleshed out. It's ready to go if a publisher wants to pick it up, but uh, as far as details, it's, you know, in case a publisher picks it up, you don't want to spoil the surprise, so it's it's staying under wraps for now. Uh, is it on the level of Time Cop with Jean Claude Van Damme? Uh, um, well, <laughs> um, that's a I've fresh seen, I've seen I've seen that movie, and there's a lot of reasons that there's a lot of cheese in that movie, and I think a lot of the cheese that comes from full motion video games comes from the casting, and you know you don't really know 
how the casting is going to be until you get into production. So who's to say? Yeah, because some of the I thought all the cheese came from Cheese Girl. I have got to say, some of the wigs in Pegasus Prime made me straight laugh. I'm like, that wig do not fit you. Like the news reporter, I was on the floor dying. I'm just like, is this Nessie Grace? Like, what? Wait, what? You got to use what you got. You use whatever you have on you. Actually, I remember Tom and me, Tommy telling me a little bit about um, the the journal entries in the World Science Center when you're looking at Elliot Sinclair talking about, you know, morphing process and time-bending experiments and stuff. Those glasses he's wearing, those are just dollar store glasses. <laughs> <laughs> they look great on camera, hey, you know, you, like shooting, you, at, shooting at simple NTSC rates. You know, you can't tell. Exactly. <laughs> they just look like nerdy scientist glasses. And well, you, it, it did the job beautifully. And were you guys using green screen at that time? Uh, when we were doing some some blue screen and green green screening work. Yeah, Tommy's got. I think on. I think maybe on uh, YouTube you can view some of the raw footage of from Pegasus Prime and Buried in Time of the blue screen acting that they were doing. Uh, more so in J2 and J3 than they were doing in J1. And Pegasus Prime, they did a little bit of this because now they had the budget that they could do green screen, blue screen, and kind of you know seamlessly integrate the actors into the computer-generated environments. In fact, it's really impressive how Presto did this in the blue screen. On the blue screen set, they actually had to place the lights in the blue screen set to match exactly where the lights were in the computer-generated environment so that the lighting would match. That's cool. cool. So, yeah, that that attention to detail is kind of what gives Journeyman Project that that extra edge that you didn't always see from video full-motion video games at the time. We had a custom plug-in that was uh, programmed by uh, Bob Bell, who now works at Apple. Um, He had a program where we, from Photoshop, this plug-in would launch, and we could throw up an image with a map channel and in real time see it composited with the video so we could see how the um, everything was going to composite together. And uh, the hardware we were using at the time was uh, Radius Video Vision to capture uh, video at that time. I mean, even for standard def video, we needed a custom uh, card and GPU and all this equipment just to record that in real time back then. So um, to to kind of tie into the the occasion today, um, tell us a little bit about you know bringing Pegasus Prime to Steam. Oh, is this me? I think this is me. Uh, so yeah, the, the the Steam discussion really kind of took off after we released the GOG version, which was only a few months after the DVD shipped in late 2013. We were on GOG, I think, by March or April of 2014. I don't know the exact dates. I think Matt or Tommy right. probably know better. Yeah, sounds about right to me. And then we thought, well, GOG DVD is great, but we really want to be on Steam because that is like the gaming store for PC. That's kind of, uh, you know you could almost describe it as the Walmart of gaming. I mean, if you get on Steam, you're going to be seen by the most the most eyes. So I thought, well, I don't know how to get onto Steam because I, I'd never done that before. 
And But I knew that the process was either you had to be a huge mega publisher with an existing relationship with Valve, which we weren't and we aren't because we, you know, we're, 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 we're pretty indie now. We don't have a publisher. We're just kind of you know a skeleton crew of Tommy, Matt, myself, and occasionally a couple other former Presto members. So, okay, we, we don't have the kind of clout with Valve that we can just knock on their door and say, hey, can you put the game on the store? So we're going to go through the green light process. And it was quite a bit of a, of a learning experience there. Uh, Tommy, Tommy and I kind of worked through it, and I don't remember when we launched Greenlight. Was that – it was April, May, or June. I forget, Tommy. I don't know the exact dates. But uh, that, that didn't take very long at all to actually get greenlit to where we could actually put the game on the store. And at first we were thinking, okay, well, we can just throw the game on Steam. It will be the same thing as GOG. But Steam offers you, you know, there's their Steamworks SDK, which lets you put in things like achievements and controller support and badges and emoticons and things like that. And I thought, well, these are pretty cool features, actually. Let me try to investigate what it would take to put these things into the game. And for for complicated legal reasons that I won't bore you guys with because it's stupid and you don't want to hear about it anyway. Uh, we had to, what I had to do was create a separate application that handles all the steam stuff and basically just talks back and forth to the scum VM app and kind of processes the steam events that way, which has a neat little benefit of in case there's another store that has something like achievements and stuff like that. I can just port this little app instead of the entire game. And you know, it, it just works. Uh, but in, in developing this application, I ran into a bug that was going to hold up the release of the game because when we announced that there was going to be a Steam version, we promised that there was going to be controller support, full controller support. And the issue I was running into, and this was as a result of me using kind of a proxy application to do the communication, was... If you went into the save dialog and tried to name your game, normally there is uh, a huge kind of gamepad keyboard that comes up where you can type in what you want using the Steam controller. That wasn't coming up for some reason, so you'd have to use the keyboard and mouse. Well, if I'm sitting on a couch and playing the game on TV, I'm not going to have a keyboard with me, so this has got to get fixed somehow. And I was pouring through the documentation trying to figure out what on earth could be causing this, this problem. And eventually, I, I just couldn't figure it out. I was posting on the forums, trying to talk to somebody at Valve. And, you know, when, when you post on Valve forums, it's you and a sea of hundreds of other developers. I mean, you don't, you don't know, like, there, there's, only a few, there's only so many folks at Valve, and there's so many of us. So it's, it's hard to gauge, pun not intended, whether you're going to find an audience with Valve's dev team. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take this into my own hands. So this past October, I flew to Seattle for Steam Dev Days, and I tracked down somebody on the Steamworks dev team. And basically, I brought my laptop with me, and I showed them Pegasus Prime and said, here's where it should be bringing up the gamepad. Here's where it's... See, it's not showing the gamepad. Here's the code. Am I doing everything right? And they took a look at it, and they're like, yeah, you're doing everything right. Yeah, that's that's wrong. We should look into that. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> victory. <laughs> totally made the trip worth it. Awesome. So Dedication, uh, ladies and gentlemen, from these guys yes. to make it work for you. And they, we, we did a back and forth between myself and a couple other folks on the Steamworks team, and they got that fixed, and it was in the, the main public Steam client by mid-January. And so I'm like, mid-January? get this game running and it was ready to go by January 30, uh, 31st. And so from then on, it's like, all right, get the store all up and ready and then just hit the button. So 
now we're up to February 20th, and finally this long odyssey of mine can come to a close. Yay. <laughs> and what's the game? Not Congratulations. That not that I'm, not that I'm that shedding that. too many tears over it. I mean, there's going to be some patches and stuff. I've got an idea for uh, at least one major patch coming up, but uh, I'm going to keep that a surprise for now until, until, that's, until that's ready. And I, I, to- I told Keith probably three years ago that we're going to be fixing bugs in this game until we're dead. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there'll be patches. I Definitely. think the same um, um, principle applies to games as film, which is uh, film is only, a, a, you know, finished once you abandon it. And, uh, you know, at, with this game, eventually at some point, it'll only get done when we have something better to move on to. Yeah, it's 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 a lot like the Star Wars special editions, right? As as long as George Lucas had access, he just kept wanting to make changes, make changes, make changes. And there there's so many versions of it out there. I mean, how many versions of Pegasus Prime are there out there now? CD, DVD, GOG version, now the Steam version, and there's a bunch of different versions of the DVD. We had a Mac DVD, we had a unified DVD. It's like ah, oh, it's getting as bad as Star Wars almost. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Tommy, don't forget about the original game, though. I mean, this may be the special edition, but some folks want the original trilogy, so to speak. <laughs> oh, this uh, brings me uh, to um, back to the history of uh, old Journeyman projects. So some folks, when they talk about the first Journeyman project that they want, they keep saying Turbo, but there's actually a Journeyman project that's very rare because Turbo had a huge release when it came out on Packard Bell. Uh, right. That was... I think that was like a user base of about 800,000 people at that time. Best decision Presto ever made. (laughs) And that brought in a lot of instant customers for the Journeyman Project 2 and 3. But before that, there was the very rare Journeyman Project non-turbo releases. And those are the hard ones to find. I would say for Windows, um, it's actually not a bad idea now because for a while it used to be really chuggy and un, uh, slow because it was running through a real-time interpreter called um, anybody remember Macromedia Director? It was like an early predecessor to Flash. I remember and it, was, it. And it was so <laughs> slow. And that's yeah, why the early project games were slow. We didn't have a full-time programmer back in the early 90s. Uh, it wasn't until uh, David Black and Bob Bell came in and really did proper coding where the games actually ran properly and then later on uh roland gustafson but uh uh however the funny thing is those games now if you run them now they actually run reasonably fast so if you find the old journeyman project before turbo um even though it's 300 percent slower on a multi-gigahertz system it you know the speed difference is not really going to be uh, that bad at all. And the one version that runs the fastest of them all is Mac version 1.2. That is the fastest Journeyman Project version of them all. It actually runs faster than Turbo. So if you find that version, that specific vintage is the vintage to get. But um, the Turbo moniker was actually funny uh, because the Macromedia Director version ran so sluggishly when they were, when the Presto team were trying to make it more usable and they were going to have this come out right before Buried in Time. They wanted to find a name for it that wasn't as dry as just calling it Journeyman Project 2.0. Uh, you know, it, found it, very, it sounded very nerdy and also it could have been confused with uh, Journeyman Project 2 Buried in Time. 
And so at that time, I was a fan of Street Project, a Street, I'm sorry, Street Fighter Two Turbo, uh, which was the arcade upgrade to the original Street Fighter Two. And I just said, why not call it Journeyman Project Turbo? Everybody laughed, and then that name stuck. <laughs> was that after the hack version of Street Fighter? Yeah. So it, so the name for Journeyman Project Turbo was actually inspired by Capcom. Wow, because I remember Capcom had a hack, someone hacked it where you could throw like the fireballs in the air and it was in turbo. Then Capcom found out and then did a turbo version of it. Yeah, one thing about uh, 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 the Street Fighter series is the naming convention really doesn't help you in finding out which order the game should be played. You know, there's like Alpha 3, whatever, 4, where, where which comes after what? No kidding. That's That's a hot mess. Tommy, um, I still think when we do a special edition of Turbo, we should call it either Super Journeyman Project Turbo or maybe Journeyman Project Hyper Turbo or EX. Hyper Edition or EX. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll just look up on the Street Fighter uh, Wikipedia to come up with naming conventions. There we go. <laughs> well, don't don't make it uh, the Journeyman Project Discovery, uh, Infinite Undiscovery. Don't do anything like that. Oh. <laughs> so Actually, it- to- Oh, no, go. Okay. Uh, Tommy, I, I was going to uh, ask you, you could probably talk about this a little bit. Um, one of the reasons why the old Journeyman projects work on modern systems so well is that we have much, much faster optical drives. Yes, that too. Um, Journeyman project was written for a target bit rate of 150K per second, uh, which is uh, sl- probably slower than dial-up today. And then Journeyman Project 2 had a target bit rate of about 300k per second. Journeyman Project Pegasus Prime and Journeyman Project 3 had a target bit rate of, uh, I think it was about 450 to 600k per second. And then by the time uh, uh, the DVD version of Journeyman Project 3 came out, we just didn't care about that kind of stuff anymore. But yeah, it was such a constraining problem where the bottleneck on these computers back then were just so narrow. We were just, even though we had all these beautiful graphics, we just couldn't figure out how to shove the graphics through fast enough that uh, it could go from the disc to the video card fast enough. I mean, the just systems just couldn't handle it at the time. That's one of the things that I do have to say that it had going for them with Quake when they made the why it was so revolutionary was that they just threw all the assets into RAM and then it didn't have to read from disk once the whole, uh, uh, what do they call them? Wad was loaded. And then you just started playing the game in real time. Um, And uh, that was an issue that just finally didn't correct itself until DVD ROMs became uh, commonplace in the late nineties. And that's one of the things that made uh, Mist three, um, a much more pleasant experience from a gameplay point of view than, uh, you know, our earlier efforts. I mean, I would say mystery was the culmination where the technology fo- finally caught up where the player could have a good experience and without having to worry about uh, the technical requirements of their system. Well, Tommy, one of the, one of the reasons why um, the first journeyman project pre turbo was so slow was because you had so many video files just scattered all over the CD-ROM. And so for Turbo, as as I recall, you optimized the CD-ROM itself, 
right? Yeah, we 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 were very careful about running uh, the contents of the distro and optimization process. In fact, the way assets were put together uh, were very important. So that um, this was an issue on early Macs with which files remained open at the same time from the operating system's point of view. And so we would even have to keep track of that on the disk. Yeah, because in like Turbo, uh, the video files are organized such that like all of the video for a certain environment was in in one video file, but organized in the video file such that um, clips that were needed after certain clips, like close to each other, like you didn't have to wait for the CD-ROM to spin around and seek to a different track to find the data. It was just right there. So you avoided the time of the CD-ROM having to seek to the correct position. Yeah, and there was another problem that uh, was really prevalent on before Journeyman Project 3, with Journeyman Project 1 and 2, early multimedia PCs had these just piece of junk video cards which could only play two sounds at once. And because of that, I remember in Journeyman Project 2, a lot of the sounds had to be folded down or pre-mixed with one another. And so you get a lot of hiccuping in the sound playback on Windows. And it just made the game sound awful from our ears point of view, uh, no pun intended. The Mac version of Buried in Time is actually a better audio experience, but we just had no choice because our user base just didn't have good sound cards at that time. Uh, I think the main problem with the Windows one was that the original Windows mixer could only play one sound at a time. So when you start up a video, it would kick out what was playing and wave out. So, I think for Buried in Time Windows, you can have multiple sounds at the same time, just not multiple sounds and video at the same time due to the way video for Windows worked back then. Yeah, so that was just our Windows limitation, but... Uh, this was uh, all pre-DirectX, oh, direct too, direct. yeah. None of this stuff existed. Yeah. So uh, I want to break for just one second here. Um, due to time constraints, Adrian is uh, parting ways with us. I wanted to say goodnight and thank him for... Uh, being able to join us, I know it was hard for him to, uh, you know, break out of uh, immigration security and, you know, be able to come and join us again finally. You know, we're, we're glad you made it over that wall. Yeah, it's stupid snow wall. It's getting too big now. <laughs> so. But well, I do got to go. So well, uh, uh, thank you so so much, guys, for uh, talking with us. And uh, Well, I'm the only one going, so you guys well, can keep talking. Adrian, <laughs> Adrian, before you go, go ahead and plug your stuff. Oh, you plug them at the end, dude. <laughs> I don't have time for that. Well, Eddie, we're just going to roll it in with the plugs for the rest of your stuff. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Well, at least All right, plug. All right. See you, Adrian. <laughs> Bye, Adrian. Bye. Good night. So, um, if you're not horrifically opposed, um, I, I'd love to jump into some uh, some listener questions. Because like I said, you guys set the bar for us. This is the first time that I've put the call out and actually gotten uh, questions for for the show. Um, so, this this is new for us. So, we're going to you know kind of wing it and see what we get here. Um, I want to shout out to Nick uh, Lapala from uh, Twitter. Uh, cause he, he posted a question that we've pretty well hit on, 
But it also leads into one from the real DC. Nick was asking, you know, will we ever see a fourth entry, which we've pretty well touched on, and we won't get out the 10-foot pole again. But um, to kind of piggyback on that, onto something that, uh, you know, was mentioned in regards to that, Real DC asks, you know, any chance of crowdfunding a fourth game instead of necessarily seeking out a uh, a publisher, you know, would would that something like that be an option to make that, you know, finally come to life? Here's my take on that. Money is not the problem. The team is the problem. There's only Tommy, myself, and Matt, and we're both programmers. You know, the the original Journeyman Project team, they've all gone on to illustrious careers. Like, some of them work at Pixar, some of them at DreamWorks, you know, a lot of them in Hollywood now, including Tommy. I mean, come on. But, you know, getting getting that team back together after, you know, 20 years and them being in these amazing new careers, that's going to be tough. What about putting the call out to, to kind of build up some new teams, say, hey, We've had this sitting in the wings long enough. We want to do something with it, and we, you know, we want some uh, some fresh blood to help bring it to life. Well, that's always a challenge too, because um, after Journeyman Three, you know, there's there's an expectation from fans, I think, for any new Journeyman project game to match or, you know, now it's been 20 years, you know, beat the aesthetic of the original Journeyman project games, and so it's, you know. I'm, I'm, I have no doubt there are people with that kind of talent out there, but finding those people, that's going to be tough as well. Um, yeah, I agree with pretty much everything Keith said. Um, it's better to wait until the time is right than to shove out something uh, that just doesn't work. That's a cash grab. Um, in terms of uh, crowdfunding, it's better to not have it backwards. It's better. Keith is absolutely right in saying that the team has to be there first before the money comes because otherwise you know you'll you'll hear about uh these uh um situations where uh it just doesn't work out so i would say when the time is right uh you know it may it may happen and it might surprise fans uh who knows when that'll happen and um i like to uh for fans who are very aware of Douglas Adams, I I like his definition of what a trilogy is. So you'll have to look that up. Okay. A uh, quick question: um, Would you guys ever think about doing an audio book, like reading actually the script? Uh, if it comes that you guys never do it, but the script is so good that you guys would like to do like a reading or something, would you guys do that? Uh, ask us again in forty years. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, that's actually not a bad idea. I, I could, I mean, I could float that to, uh, the original writers, uh, you know, and see if, uh, you know, what their interest is, uh, regarding that. Um, I don't think a game, the game is not written in, the game design is not written in prose like you would normally expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's written as a design document, you know, this occurs, that occurs, what parts and pieces are needed to make this experience presented to the player. However, I, get, I, I suppose the closest thing we have to prose might be what Eric Dallaire had been working on, and he does work part-time as a novelist now, so uh, there might be some possibility there. That's uh, not a bad yeah. idea. Yeah, you could you could at least get some of the backstory as probably either a novelization or a short, a short audio book, but the game in its entirety, I mean, there's... 
there's a reason why movie versions of games don't do very well, right? Because games are full of branching storylines, and you can't capture all of that in a linear format like a movie or a book. Right, right. Um, got one from uh, Adrian von Giggerfeld, and I'm pretty sure I just butchered that horribly, so you can you know punch me in the stomach later for that. Um, any plans for uh, remasters of 2 and 3? Working on it. Two, at least. Yep. Two, yes. Tastic. Hopefully three. What yeah. was that? Hopefully three, I said. Okay. Yeah. We want to do three. We definitely want to do three. So uh, if, if things work out, then that that probably is the next thing on the plate. Uh, for two, I don't know if, if maybe we can tease a little bit about this. I mean, Tommy has already done it on the page, so I figure it's fair game. But one of the biggest complaints about Journeyman 2 is the small play area, the small window where the uh, the play, you know, the the graphics are rendered. Um, how come it? How come it's not bigger than that? It's like it's really you no. Know, it's mostly interface, not enough game window. Uh, we're doing something about that. <laughs> so fantastic. So let's let's take a look. What else have we got here? Um, uh, we've got a handful of stuff from uh, Michelio Dimitri, who I actually spent some time chatting with last night. Very cool. Uh, the first one that I got from him on Twitter was pretty well hit on. Um, well, I'm skipping over to something else here. Um, want to ask any chance that we see these games come to something outside of PC? You know, is this something where, especially now that there's a, a controller format for this, you know, with the Steam release, is this something where we could see maybe downloads of this show up on XBLA, PSN? Uh, eShop kind of thing. I'm happy to do it. I just need the hardware. Well, so. the Nintendo Switch development kits are only $500. So <laughs> That's a lot of money for someone who doesn't have $500 to burn. <laughs> no, I, here's what we do right now. We open up a crowdfund for, you know, to get you guys 500 bucks to get you a Switch dev kit. Hey, if you guys can do that, you know, if... I mean, it's or, you know, just just use the use the tactic that I've been using for years working on this. Beg, borrow and steal before you have to before you have to buy anything. <laughs> you know, all these controllers, everything but the Steam controller that I added for the Steam release is all controllers I've borrowed from friends. You know, it's like I don't have a PS4. I just borrowed a PS4 controller from, you know, my buddy Jonas. And so it's like, all right, PS4 controller support. Here you go. So. <laughs> So the the potential is there. It's it sounds like it's literally just comes down to uh, the scratch. Yeah. The other thing about uh, those major consoles is that because because the console market is so huge and expectations are different from PC, um, the console vendors Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo have much stringent submission requirements, which may not affect the PC version as it stands right now, but. If we're putting together something for release on console, we may be under uh, a bit more scrutiny as far as what they think is okay for going onto their platforms. And so that would incur a little bit more development time. Um, okay. I think Nintendo has opened up a little bit more due to the Isaac of, uh, Biden of Isaac um, theme-wise. So I think you guys would be fine on Nintendo. I think uh, as usually Nintendo might actually help you guys if it's a really good game, like if you, it, it's kind of it's kind of like Sony has Double Fine with some of their uh, adventure games, and like Nintendo really doesn't have an adventure game. So if 
this might hit like a whole new audience, you know, uh, playing this game and taking a, something like this on the go that don't, doesn't require your PC, you know, making an eShop digital thing. I think a lot of people will pick it up on Nintendo. Yeah, it could be. I mean, content wise, I'm not worried about because, uh, uh, like, like Tommy said, we were ready to go on the PlayStation one back in 1997. And so, uh, we went through the ESRB. We've got a, I think, I think it's either E or a, a T for teen rating on the game. So content wise, you know, even by 90, K to A, it's fine. K to A. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. It, it predated E. It got, yeah. it got one of the early ESRB ratings, but, um, the notation it was given was animated violence, so, so it was rated okay for K to A, which is uh, kids to adults. Right. So content-wise, it's probably going to be fine for going on any of these consoles, mm-hmm. but I'm as as the programmer, I'm more worried about technical requirements, and so that's what I'm that's what I'm concerned about. You know, if we were going to target uh, a console release, I think a more a more likely port would be something to like an iPad or mobile phones. So, because uh, ScumVM already runs on mobile, and so it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to adapt some good touch controls for the the series. Well, right the Switch does run uh, Unreal Engine four point fifteen and Unity still, so I'm just saying. <laughs> um, I've I've got the uh, the rest of the stuff from Dimitri here, and I, I, it's so much of a love letter, right? It deserves to be shared in its entirety, and there, there's kind of a slew of questions in it, but it, it deserves to be shared. Um, the post that he left us uh, was, you know, my experience with Journeyman Project was quite magical. Played it on my uh, 486 back then, and it was mind-blowing. Watched the making of uh, JP bundled on the game disc many times, and, you know, what I knew from it was that originally the game was not written as we understand game making, it was drawn, animated, voiced, and scripted in some kind of uh, editor on the Macintosh. So it seems like a crazy and brave idea to make a revolutionary game without even programming it. You know, I wonder how come the guys came to this idea, what was driving it. Um, so we'll, we'll hit on that first, and then I'll, I'll jump into some of the rest. That's a Tommy question, I think. He was there when that was all going on. That's all Macromedia director work there. Yeah, um, it was largely because um, a lot of the programming everyone was doing was more akin to, uh, it was not really programming, you would call it more like scripting. And uh, there were these early scripting languages, like uh, for HyperCard, there was HyperTalk, and there was Lingo for Director, which was a predecessor language to what is used on Flash. And... So because there wasn't a real programmer in the group and everybody was more uh, – the team was more composed of artists, that's why uh, everyone relied on Macromedia Director for better or worse. It allowed for a very visual experience. It was like – you could say it was like a supercharged version of um, PowerPoint at that time. But uh, it was packaged together – in a way where an end user could use it and uh, it worked. And so I think buried in time was probably the last time it was used. The Mac version at least was powerful enough where it could be self encapsulated. But at that point we had to bring in a real programmer, which was David black who allowed the windows version of turbo to happen. 
he uh, programmed it from the ground up to be a proper application. And uh, from then on, uh, Presto had proper technology for its games, uh, such as Myst 3. But uh, uh, one thing I do want to say to uh, uh, Dimitri, uh, is that his name? Yes. Yeah, I uh, want, you know, I want to say uh, Privyat Dimitri and uh, Spasiba uh, for his support from Russia. Um, uh, we definitely noticed all uh, the love uh, that he's uh, been passing in our direction. And uh, one thing I want to say that's really interesting about the Russian fan base is that there was never a Russian version of the German project ever officially made. Um, what had happened is... Uh, it was localized to the typical Western languages, such as Spanish, German, and uh, there was also a Japanese version. But the Russian version is a bootleg, but it is an astonishingly thorough bootleg where they had Russian voices record all the dialogue in Russian and localize the whole thing. So we have no idea who they are. And uh, the statute of limitations has run out, so they have nothing to worry about. But uh, I do have to say, um, they've brought us, the Russian fan base, uh, the Russian awareness of the Journeyman Project series, and they deserve that credit for that. It's a very, very impressive bootleg. Like, the lengths they went to, it looks like they hacked the game itself. Like, for the text, the voice, the graphics, everything. Matt, I think we're going to have to support that in the Scum VM version. <laughs> Give me a copy. <laughs> I got one. I'll hook you up. <laughs> That's excellent. Really cool. Um, uh, Dimitri and I actually talked a little bit about that last night. That you know, and I, I was not aware that the the Russian version came you know only as a, a bootleg, and you know just now hearing the lengths that somebody went to to put this bootleg together is just phenomenal and shows some spectacular love for the series. Um, I, yeah, I want to jump the, a little further the here. This, the moral of this whole story is, you know, all these fans with all their dedication to the game and things like that, and, you know, Matt and I working really hard to put this release together as a labor of love. The moral of the story really is, if you love a game a lot, let the creators know. Because you never know what they'll let you do, you know? So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> In, in our case, Matt and I got really lucky in that press. I was like, okay, sure, we'll let you do that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, you know, let let them also know, just if, if you have nothing else to offer, let them know, for love of God, by buying the game. Make it a tremendous success all over again. Thank but, you very uh, much, Larry, for that. Uh, yeah, that is, that is true. You know, and we, we ran into this, you know, this was a, a point of conversation uh, a couple months ago when we had on the uh, guys that did uh, AM2R, which was the uh, fan-made remake of Metroid 2 from the original Game Boy. And uh, when that got the uh, takedown notice from Nintendo, you know, Milton was a, an absolute class act. And, you know, there, there was no outrage from him, no, you know, he just said, you know, honestly, I kind of expected it. And... Do the best thing you can do. Show them we want this. Buy the official stuff. Vote with your dollars. Yeah, but uh, be like if you're doing if you're doing fan works, be smart about it. I mean, if 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 you're doing something like AM2R where you know you're using someone else's material, 
Don't be surprised when you get a takedown notice. You know, I mean, I agree with you. That was a very, very classy move. I mean, they didn't throw a fit or anything like that. But, you know, I, I wish there were more people like that, that, you know, realize, you know, it's it's a realistic situation. And, you know, you don't just get carte blanche to do whatever you want with somebody else's work. You know, sometimes, you know, it, it works out in your favor. Most times it doesn't. But, you know, if, if, if you, you know, give it a chance anyway, you know, so – just don't get upset if if it's it's all coming crashing down. Yeah, no, and that's the thing they didn't. You know, he's kind of like, I kind of figured this was going to come. I didn't think it was going to happen that fast, but I, I kind of expected it and left it at that. You know, so but beyond that too, I think there's somewhere in the back of his head he's going, you know, what it exists on the internet. It will never go away now. So, well, part of me also thinks that you know the experience that he gets working on something of that. That's ex- that's you know experience that he now has. You can yeah. transfer that to other projects. You know, it's a, it's a net positive. I think there's always something good to come out of an experience like that. Oh yeah, and him and Steve are working on uh, just the beginning stages of something new. So there's awesome. something cooking. Awesome. Uh, well, you know, and now they've got something they can point to and say, "Hey, look, we've got skills. Look at what we did." Exactly. Uh, you know, to their credit. AM2R, you know, nailed it as our game of the year last year. So, you know, that that was hands down my favorite thing to come out of 2016. But um, jumping and back into uh, some of Dimitri's stuff here, um, I'm going to skip just a tidge of this because it's some stuff that we've already hit on. Um, one that gets into some real nitty-gritty, actually, about uh, some minute differences from the original into uh, Pegasus Prime. Um, says, you know, another question which started to bother me lately. After I bought Pegasus Prime on uh, Good Old Games in uh, JP Turbo, everything looks like the story was meant to be seen in a direct order. Mars, Australia, NORAD, probability of success on the TCA monitor gives us a hint of, in percentage of success. Um, that's because the instrument to unlock the fire alarm in Australia is in Mars Colony Transport Train. An iScan biochip that is needed to win NORAD is also not in NORAD. If we play, ideally, we see all scenes of the game only once, and after NORAD, we get direct hint that now Sinclair waits for us in uh, Caldoria. It's written in The Last Robot's video memory, so it's obvious that this robot is last, and now we have to go back to present time to finish the game. Um, Journeyman Project Turbo is perfect in that way. Uh, he says, but in Pegasus Prime, you can't beat Mars in one visit. So you will see out of my way, human or die, three times. You know, at first where it was in Turbo, and then two times more where in Turbo, uh, Ares was just passing by. Now he talks and throws you back. And now he can solve NORAD earlier than Mars, which means that Sinclair's words giving us direct hint where to go right now kind of are given to us in the wrong time and that percentage on TCA monitor is now simply you know doesn't mean anything was all that made intentionally and I apologize I totally threw this huge slew at you but you know it's it's nitty gritty and it's interesting stuff I feel like it makes the puzzles more complex and I think that's better for gameplay so no, but I, mean, I, the- I think Dimitri does have a point, which is um, he played Journeyman Project Turbo in a particular order. And in that case, 
the game was made and the story was made to fit. And so the, um, because we had the game coming together and the story was laid on top of it to fit the gameplay that was already in place and it was happening organically, it all fit together reasonably well. The problem that was encountered with Pegasus Prime in a remake was a lot of new expanded elements were added to the environment. Wow, we have more time. Look what we can do. And we didn't learn this until after the fact that we were actually changing what would later become uh, beloved experiences for nostalgia's sake because from the point of view of the creators who had just seen this fresh created just a few years ago, there was no sense of nostalgia at that time. It's almost like the way George Lucas would look at Star Wars. Well, I, I made it. I don't have any sense of nostalgia about the experience. He does not have that audience experience, and he just goes back and adds things that weren't available before, whether or not it may necessarily make sense. And we were trying to be... Um, rational in terms of what was added to Pegasus Prime to expand the gameplay. And so one thing we noticed fans uh, responded to uh, in the original 1997 release for the few fans that did play it is, wow, why was this missing? Why was that missing? Why was this different? Why was that different? And in many cases, Pegasus Prime also had its deadline crunch and a lot of things did go missing. And so in the re-release, a lot of the experiences that were missing were added back to make it more light what fans originally experienced in their original play of Journeyman Project Turbo. However, Dimitri is right. There are uh, huge fundamental changes in the gameplay because of the way the environments were expanded, the way uh, the inventory items that could be discovered are distributed differently among the environments. And I, uh, in hindsight, if we had a time machine, of course we would do diff things differently, but that's just how the game was designed at that time with the uh, production schedule and capabilities that we had available. I think if we did a remake of Journeyman Project yet again, it might be different, but uh, Pegasus Prime is a snapshot of what was, what could be created in 1997, and of course with some extra time to add things that didn't make the cut at that time. And uh, uh, also to make the experience more similar to Buried in Time. So, uh, you know, there, there's good things about Pegasus Prime in that it has better graphics. It's a more cohesive story with Buried in Time. And then there's some things that uh, Journeyman Project Turbo do does have going for it. Um, uh, they're just two different animals. And uh, I think at some point in the future for fans who are just, um, want to relive that 1993 nostalgia. I, I'm sure we'll see a uh, special edition release of the Journeyman Project. I don't know if we call it Turbo anymore. I guess we just call it the Journeyman Project. Uh, what would we call it, uh, Keith? Got some ideas here? Super Journeyman Project Turbo. All right, awesome. <laughs> well, we'll draw from that Capcom well again. That's right. I'm Make it painfully yet. obvious where our inspiration came from. Yes. Uh, I remember when I first talked to Tommy about Pegasus Prime, I, I think I think the biggest complaint I had was that while I like the music that was in Pegasus Prime, I definitely was missing some of the cues that were in the original, like especially the Mars Maze theme. Oh, and yes. we, we, uh, we, that's definitely 
been reworked into the updated version now. Yeah. So some things have been Got to uh, love that fixed, classic so Dino Andrews, but I mean that Bob Stewart music is just as magical to me, I think. Oh, I love it too. I It was just more like, I remember playing the game the first time, like, where's the Mars Maze music? <laughs> yeah, Tommy, if you want that. Speaking of Gino Andrews, um, the, the infomercial video for Gino Andrews' album in Buried in Time is one of the most gloriously cheesy things on the face of the earth aside from a can of cheese girl but I, I so i gotta still... i gotta i gotta tell you something about that larry every song you hear in that commercial mm-hmm. that's a real song that song exists every I, single one of them is a full song <laughs> i kind of always had a sneaking suspicion somewhere yeah dear lord that that video wow oh Okay, so I got a question for you, Larry. Since all those songs were actually recorded by Gino Andrews, if we put together a CD of Gino Andrews of Fond Remembrance, would you get that? Uh, Promise me it's signed and I'm buying it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm in for one, too. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to just take one. It has to come on an Environ cartridge, though, or I'm not getting it. Oh, yeah. oh <laughs> no. Well, Matt, you're going you're gonna to have to wait at least like 300 years before you'll be able to play it. <laughs> right. okay. That's okay. It just means we have something to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, speaking of I, I would buy it, uh, just touching back, I wanted to make sure that that was out there. I will hands down in a heartbeat. I would throw 60 bucks at a physical copy of all three games on on Switch or anything else. But, dear Lord, if that was pressed to a physical copy for the full collection, the trilogy, money is in your hands in a heartbeat for me. Where were you in 1999? They already released the trilogy as a box set. And the the downside for me is that I got away from PC gaming in in most things. It it got to a point for me that it was easier financially to invest in a console, and I had one solid piece of hardware for you know five six years that was going to run everything that came out on it. And I, I stepped away from PC, and I'm I, I haven't gone back to it nearly as much as I'd like to because there is some PC stuff that you know I will piddle around with but most of my default is i find my 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 comfort and my joy sitting back and playing on a console and so you know like i said i'm i'm excited at the prospect that you know with controller support that's something that that appeals to me greatly you know to be able to kick back and you know i've got a theater room that just got brand new furniture in it too even um, you know, to kick back on my comfy new couch with my big screen TV. Tell know, me you're going to play Pegasus Prime on that. Oh, it's it's going to happen. Cause now oh, I'm, yes. I'm going to be playing Pegasus Prime in 3D. Oh, dang. Crank up your subwoofer, man. Turn out the lights, crank up the speakers, and buckle up. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it's, you know, I, I would throw money at that in a heartbeat. And... Uh, Given some of the uh, the reaction to uh, you know the the news that you guys were going to be on our show, I think a whole lot of other people would too. All right, I hear you. 
Well, like I said, I get the hardware. I'll do it. I'm happy to do it because I want to see it too. <laughs> you know what? We'll uh, we'll, we'll maybe have a conversation in the forum about you know uh, seeing if it's really worth you know putting together a crowdfund to get you guys some funds to get you a, a Switch dev kit. Mm. Well, the flip side of that too is, I mean, this has been this has been something that fans have been asking for for a while. Oh, put it on Xbox 360, you know, and like, well, <laughs> if we had gotten the kit back then, you know, and now the game is ready to go. Well, no one has a 360 anymore, so it's like it's one of those things where we got to get it early enough, and I got to have enough time in my schedule, yeah. right, to do it too. So, I mean, the the Steam version took way too long. I mean, it took two years to do, but that's because I work it on I work on it during you know a few hours every night and stuff, and on weekends and things. This isn't my full time job, right? So, I mean, I, I just do this love. kind of a, a labor of love, basically. It's my side gig, but. Um, you know, if, if there's enough lead time, you know, because PS4 came out how long ago? I don't know. And it's still going strong. So, you know, if we get this, if we get this ready to go early, then, yeah, sure, we could put a port out. That'd be fine. So not only that, but I think something like, and I am I feel like I'm beating a, a drum to death here, but, um, you know, Switch, I think, could hit on some of what else you talk about, you know, a, a mobile port or a tablet port. Because then you've got that portability, pick it up and go with you factor too. Oh yeah, definitely. And we've got an advantage there where ScumVM is already running on mobile, and so that cuts a lot out of the development time where we don't have to rewrite the entire game to work on a new system. I mean, it's already running on Android and iOS, and we can just tweak it a little bit. You know, spend a couple, spend a few months on it to make it play really well and look really good and perform really well, and then just then there's your game right there, so you don't have to wait as long. Right. Um, I, I want to leave you guys with uh, with one last question. Um, what do you guys think of the current state of, you know, the point-and-click genre, uh, especially with, you know, some things like Armacrog having come out, um, you know, from the guys that did the Neverhood, the spiritual successor there, Armacrog, um, to things like, you know, Escape from Monkey Island, uh, seeing a, a resurgence in popularity. Um, you know, where, where does that... Where do you think that leaves the the genre now? Um, at least from my perspective, I don't really play as many games as I used to anymore. I mean, it's nice seeing that all this resurgence. I think uh, Keith just gave me a copy of Read Only Memories that I need to play one day. And, I mean, I love seeing that everything's back. I just don't play it as much anymore. I mean, it's great seeing that, you know, Grim Fandango remastered is out and Day of the Tentacle remastered is out. Not that I haven't played those in the past, but it's just good to see everything out again. I think, I think that, uh, and, um, this kind of goes as kind of a personal thing for me, but, uh, I think the, the big, re- I'm going to call it a resurgence cause it comes in waves, you know, every, every decade or so, but I think FMV has the, has a very real potential for a very major comeback with the rise of all this VR technology becoming in vogue these days. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if Presto's okay with me doing it, I mean, I think Journeyman Project 3 on mobile VR, I think would, would, would be a very fun experience. I mean, I want to do it. I'll, I'll probably do it at least for me, but, you know, maybe, maybe some other fans out there might think that's a cool idea. Mist 3 as well. I mean, how come, how come there aren't any Mist games in VR yet? I mean, abduction is maybe the closest thing, but that's more of a spiritual successor. Uh, it's like let's let's revisit 
you know, the classics and, you know, they, they've kind of fallen out of the public eye over the past 20, 25 years. Let's bring them back and put them in VR now that we can. There you go. You heard it here first. Uh, Journeyman Project 3 VR confirmed. Keith said so. Uh, not not confirmed. I just, <laughs> I just confirmed that I want to do it. <laughs> There's the bus. I have promptly thrown you under it. Come on, Larry. You know you know that confirmations in the number three are no friends at all. <laughs> and, uh, I do have two last questions for you guys. Uh, Toby, did you want to answer the, uh, Larry's question also? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh... I, I apologize. What was the question again? Because I was uh, so uh, I was uh, so drawn by the other two gentlemen's uh, responses. What do you oh. think of the state of point and click? Oh, okay. Um, I think the the maturity of the mobile space has finally made a lot of this possible. Where um, now that we have bigger screens on mobile devices and we have tablets. Uh, a lot of these games are perfect candidates to be ported as such. And I think what Keith had said earlier about bringing this to iOS, uh, this would be great to play on iOS. Fair enough. Right on. Um, well, here's my two questions. Uh, Keith, you mentioned FMV. Um, what did you guys think of her story? Um, I, I love it. I, I, I love the way that they did it. Um, I like the the – the main the main interface and kind of the main mechanic of okay you're kind of exploring these clues in kind of a computer i think that's a really nice way of presenting the game and i think it's really really interesting gameplay i mean what what i love about journeyman project is that the game is discovering the story that's a large part of like you're you're thrust into turbo or pegasus prime and you don't know what you're doing you just you just start the game like who am i what am i doing like where is the story going? It doesn't like spoon feed you what you have to do at the very beginning. Part of the game is discovering what you have to do. And I think her story is kind of like that kind of detective thing. What is going on with this person? I need to kind of look at all these interviews and try to piece together what's going on and try to form a story in my head. And I really like what what like how how her story does that and how it presents it. Yeah, because I know it's not a point and click game, but uh it's more just like a FMV adventure game. And uh, I mean, it got a lot of accolades and a lot of people were just surprised that someone remembered this uh, style of game making and brought it back. Yeah, they did it really well. I mean, they did a good job on that game. Uh, Tommy, Matthew, have you guys checked out her story or anything or like seen a video? Of no, it? I haven't checked it out. Okay. Uh, oh. oh, is this, uh, is this the uh, online web experience or is this uh, the game? It's the game. It's, um, with okay. The, no, no, not the not the game yet. Okay. Um, and my last question that I always ask all the developers, so everybody know, um, what is your favorite cereal or breakfast item? Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> well, pancakes, I feel because we can. Um. Well, I grew up on, and I am somewhat convinced that a factory exists for this product only for my family because I I tell people what this is and they don't know what in the world I'm talking about. But I grew up on Cocoa Wheats cereal. And I know oh, I remember Cocoa that. Wheats. I remember Cocoa Wheats. Not not Malto Meal. Malto Meal is an imposter. That's that's fake stuff. Stay away from that stuff. Cocoa Wheats <laughs> is the good stuff. I grew up on that, and so, you know, I'm nice, big, and strong now. You know, it's full of iron. It's good for you, and it's also <laughs> chocolate, so that helps. <laughs> uh, what about you, Matthew? 
Oh, it's that. I'm not. I'm not a big cereal fan, but definitely pancakes for me if I had to choose a breakfast food. Yes. What kind of pancakes? Chocolate chip, of course. Okay. And what about you, Tommy? Um, I was gonna say malto meal. <laughs> Shame. But that, that would make that would make me an imposter, right? <laughs> oh, here's here's a little um, here's a little note about the original Journeyman Project release. Um, this changed in later games, but in the first release of the Journeyman Project, when you collect all the biochips, the biochips letters are an anagram for imposter. <laughs> Wow. Oh, my. Well, Keith, can I say that actually your family, if they're in Chicago, they live just like an hour away from me? Oh, interesting. Actually, we don't. The, they don't live in Chicago proper. They live in the suburbs, but you know, it's like close enough, right? So maybe it's just maybe it's just an Illinois thing. It's like everybody in Illinois knows what Cocoa Wheats is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you went to Chicago and I got happy. I'm like, ah, I'm close to him. <laughs> I know. It, it used to be out here in California. I mean, with only within the past, you know, three or four months, the Walmart by me started carrying cocoa wheats. I had to order it from Amazon because nobody around me carried it. But now they wow. finally do. I'd order it by the six pack. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I used to have like. Thank- I used to have like fruitios and chocos from um, Aldi's. Like my grandpa would buy them for Aldi's. Yep. Yeah. Like, yep. like when you can't have Fruit Loops, fruitios was the best. Sir, I mean, my dad would do the same thing too with whatever generic stuff Dominic's or Eagle would have. It's like it tastes the same, and I'm like, it doesn't taste the same. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, so my my inner child demands that I share this little nugget of nerd uh, nerdiness with you. Um, you know, journeyman project for, for me was, you know, just at that, that right time of childhood where the, the imagination was still there and the urge to, you know, go out and play pretend and growing up as a kid, you know, my, my, some of my go-to toys were Legos and, uh, also connects, which lent itself very nicely for me to, you know, go out and play pretend because I would make myself out of connects the the little monocle, Gage's monocle, and I could wear it around and pretend to be Gage Blackwood when I was a kid. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. So it it happened. Somebody did it. It happened. Um, but uh, one one last thing we want to hit on before we start wrapping up. Um, you guys have been gracious enough to uh, put together some some stuff for us to uh, give away, and uh, I, I kind of want to share what's uh, what's on the table here. Um, we've got uh, a third, a second, and a first place prize to uh, give away. Um, third place, we've got a, a copy of the Pegasus Prime uh, soundtrack. Um, second place, the soundtrack and a copy of Journeyman Project Pegasus Prime uh, DVD physical release, and uh, very, very graciously being uh, given away here by the guys. Um, we have a autographed copy of Journeyman Project Pegasus Prime uh, to give away, along with a copy of the soundtrack as well. So, uh, for to get in on that, um, you know, when this post goes up, 
click the like button and uh, on on the episode post, and you are entered to win. And we will uh, pick out winners on next week's show. Should make them work for it. They should they should comment and explain why they think they deserve the prize. What's their best journeyman project memory? Or answer an obscure trivia question. Oh, <laughs> and you best believe we have some good ones. <laughs> oh, I, I, I want to be kind here and, you know, put it out for as much as possible. Mm. So I, I've, I've done some where you'd be surprised, you know, how little you ask of somebody and it's still apparently too much. So, you know, click the like button on the... Uh, on the episode post when this goes live and you hear it and uh, your keister is entered to win. Yeah. And guys, would you go ahead and plug um, the release, the price and where they can find the game? Go for it, Tommy. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's uh, scheduled to go up on steam tomorrow morning on the morning of Monday, President's Day, February 20th at 6 a.m. Pacific time. So for people listening, that's today. So that means by the time folks hear this, it's already up. You got it. Yes. How much will it cost, Tommy? Uh, it's going to be the same price as on GOG, which will be $9.99. However, for the launch week... It is going to have a launch discount of 10%. Uh, it'll be a buck off for early adopters. And so uh, for Steam fans, uh, get in on it uh, right away. All right. And would you guys like to plug your Twitters or where we can find you and get connected with you guys? The easiest way to find uh, all the links is on just uh, simply the journeymanproject.com, and it'll have the link to all the pertinent websites. Um, one thing uh, I'll also add is uh, a shout out to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, uh, The Maid. Uh, they're, uh, they're gracious,ly uh, having me as a guest at uh, GDC, uh, where uh, Journeyman Project will be presented. Uh, very thankful to them for that, and uh, I'll also be there representing Robotech, uh, the uh, day project that I work on now. And uh, I want to give out a shout out to Keith and Matthew for all the countless uh, weekends uh, in between their uh, careers that they've put into the love for the German project. Totally worth it. That was an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if anyone's going to be at GDC next week, we're going to be showing off uh, Pegasus Prime, like Tommy said, in the new retro play area. So go go look for us there and, and check it out. Right on. And uh, Matthew, where can, uh, where can we find you and uh, all your good stuff? <laughs> oh, I am the absolute worst with social media, but I, I guess you could try my Twitter of clone2727. Just don't expect a response. Because I never use it. You've got a blog, too, don't you, Mark? Yeah, com. No, I don't think I've updated it in the past year and a half. So There's some good uh, There's some good uh, development anecdotes in there, though. So if you're interested in that, you know, take a look, take a read. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Right on. And uh, Keith, how about you? Where do we find all your goodness? Um, 
I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is ablitter, A-B-L-I-T-T-E-R, and I, I tweet quite a bit, uh, you know, daily. So, uh, uh, mostly about old Macs and, uh, VR and stuff, but occasionally some silly things. So, you know, just ping me there. And if you got questions about Journeyman Project, I'm always happy to talk about that game. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Eddie, plug your shit. Yes, you guys can find World One One Podcast on Twitter at World One underscore One Podcast. You can find this show and more of our episodes at shoutengine.com and on iTunes. Uh, you can, uh, listen to my show, Optional Opinion, that I have on the Anomalous Radio Network.podbean.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at ThatRetroCode. Um, join and like us on Facebook at World One One Podcast Forum. You can also email the show at World One One Podcast at Gmail dot com. W O R L D One One at Gmail dot uh, Gmail dot com. <laughs> World One One Podcast at Gmail dot com. Um, like Larry said, like and share um, the page to enter the contest. Um, you can check my writings at IGN.com under anime, E-N-I-M-E, for my optional opinion blogs. I also write for uh, Skirmish Frogs called, uh, um, I do a blog called The Moment. So you guys can check that out where I talk about classic games and how they play a part in my life. So you also could do uh, do that. Um, let's see, anything else? Uh, Fro- the Frozen Machine, you can find them at Twitter at The Frozen Machine. That's Adrian Nieto's uh, crew and his development. Uh, so follow them and check out some of their games. Uh, Tuna Cycle is out, so do check out that game too if you're interested. Um, I want to plug uh, The Journeyman Project, Pegasus Prime, is available now on Steam for a good discount of eight ninety nine. So <laughs> do guys pick up the game, do check it out. They These guys work very hard to bring this classic to the masses, and they did a phenomenal job. So do check it out. Um, I'm giving it a 5 out of 5 Yoshi's, uh, Yoshi coins. That's my rating for it. Um, uh, one last plug is, uh, also, you know, find us out on the, uh, DNA podcast network along with all the rest of their good stuff. Shout out to Corey who runs that like a boss. Um, I want to say a, a huge, tremendous, phenomenal thank you to, uh, Tommy and Matthew and Keith for, uh, joining us all Yay. this evening. Um, it's been an absolute divine pleasure, uh, getting to hang out with you guys, uh, you know, sitting back in the Wayback Machine. Oh, wait, nope, that's that's the wrong time travel joke. Never mind. Um, <laughs> I can't with you but, right now. Who's Peabody <laughs> and who's Sherman? <laughs> that's right. Um, so, but again, thank you guys so, so much. Um, you know, future news going forward, please, for the love of God, keep us posted, keep us in the loop. You know, we'd love to have you guys back. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and thank you for asking us to be on the show. I mean, like I said, as long as I got an audience, I can talk about this game for hours. I, I, I'm not even kidding you. When I reached out on uh, Christmas Eve to give you guys, you know, to give the, the listening audience an idea of when when this started getting put together, uh, I reached out on uh, Christmas Eve to these guys and got a response back within an hour, and my my inner child just screamed in glee so you you you've made my my inner 10-year-old extremely happy 
<laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that, and I'm happy to happy to help out. So, guys, a wonderful pleasure again. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to say, you know, good night. Thank you that, very much, and good night. <laughs> Thanks for having us. You welcome. And with that, everybody, we are out. See you next week. Peace. Awesome.